A special taxing district proposed by Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb is meant to spur development downtown and on Cleveland's waterfronts. But City Council says at least half the proceeds must benefit neighborhoods outside of downtown. And speaking of outside of downtown, there's tons of buzz about a report that the Browns are eyeing a huge parcel in Brook Park. Could it be the site of a new stadium or a pawn in negotiations with Cleveland? Welcome to the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Akron has paid more than $700,000 in a settlement with protesters who demonstrated after the shooting death of Jalen Walker in 2022. New housing codes in Cleveland take aim at absentee property owners, scofflaw landlords, and blight. The legislature doled out earmarks across the state this week. A land bridge connecting downtown Cleveland to the lakefront got a big boost, $20 million. And the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton got millions too. The roundtable begins after the news. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thank you so much for joining us. Cleveland is cracking down on owners of rental units and unkempt vacant properties. New Residents First legislation proposed by Mayor Justin Bibb and passed this week by council requires out-of-state landlords to have a local representative responsible for the property. And sales of vacant homes would require an exterior inspection. The special taxing district proposed by the mayor to promote development in downtown Cleveland, dubbed Shore to Core to Shore, must include more. According to city council members, who want at least half of the proceeds to fund development in Cleveland's neighborhoods. The state legislature passed a $2 billion appropriations bill full of earmarks for schools and projects across the state, including millions for the National Football Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, and the proposed land bridge traversing the shoreway in Cleveland. There's money in there, too, for the Rock Hall and a million dollars for a proposed pro-women's soccer stadium in Cleveland. Despite progress on the land bridge and talks with the Cleveland Browns about creating a new waterfront that includes a renovated stadium, the Browns are reportedly eyeing a former Ford plant property in Brook Park as it explores options for a new stadium. And Akron has settled with protesters who sued over mistreatment by police in the aftermath of the Jalen Walker shooting. The city paid more than $700,000. Joining me to talk about all of that and a whole lot more in studio, IdeaStream Public Media reporters Anna Huntsman and Matt Richmond. Good to see both of you. Hey, Good Mike. morning. Good morning. And in Columbus, State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. Hey, Karen. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good. Good to have you with us today, too, virtually. We don't take calls on the Friday Roundtable, but we do invite your thoughts, and you can send them on any of our topics at soi at ideastream.org. So via email, soi at ideastream.org. You can also find us on X, formerly Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. All right, let's get ready to roundtable. Cleveland is going after bad landlords and blighted property with stricter housing codes in the most extensive overhaul in decades. To solve the problem of absentee landlords who can't be found, all rental properties must have a local representative who will be held liable for code violations. In addition, vacant home sales will require an exterior inspection aimed at compelling owners to make fixes in an effort to prevent blight. Matt, one big problem has been out-of-town bad actor landlords who just can't be located and held accountable. This aims to fix that. Yeah, it would um, have a have a local agent that would have to be kind of like listed on the uh, on the forms that all um, that all landlords have to file with the city. And now that person, if there are problems, if the city starts ticketing them or needs to bring them to court down the road, that person is the one who is held held liable, and so they would have to pay the tickets, and then they could you know turn around and sue the sue the owner. 
So, you know, one thing that kind of jumps out is a sink name. How are, how are they going how are landlords now going to find a local agent in charge to willing to do that? Yeah, to be in that position. It's an interesting point. And that's always been the frustration. I remember talking to Tony Brancatelli who was uh, uh, councilman in Slavic Village and a leader on this issue. And it, the biggest problem was finding who owns these blighted properties. If you have someone locally who's got to stand for it, it's going to be a completely different story. What they need is somebody who lives in Cuyahoga County. And it's for anyone who doesn't live in Cuyahoga County or one of the surrounding uh, counties as well. So that's what's considered out of town. Yeah. Yeah. Anything beyond a not, you know, a contiguous county. So anything beyond a neighboring county. Let's talk about the point of sale inspection, because if you live in a suburb, many suburbs, there are point of sale inspections outside and inside to make sure that houses are in good shape as they change hands. In this case, it's for vacant properties, one and three family residents, but it's only exterior expansions, uh, inspections, not interior. And that was a big concern of council if they were to do all of that at once. Yeah, and, and this initially it was it was going to be both when sort of the idea was first announced by the mayor's office, and it got a lot of pushback from from landlords, with a concern that you know this would slow down tra- transactions a great deal, and you know inspections aren't aren't free, and to if you own a bunch of apartments, to have an interior inspection in every one of them would be a big expense that would then be be passed on to uh, to renters. And so the compromise was the exterior only um, inspection. And I think for council, that's one of the things like so many of the things that end up going through council are based on how many calls the council members get. Mm. And if there's one call that you hear about over and over again, it's about the house on the street with the overgrown weeds and the and the fallen down porch and how that just is, you know, has so many negative effects on on that block. And so at least the exterior um, inspection and the requirements about bringing it up to code would address those concerns, hopefully. And there is a grace period until the summer, but then that kicks in. All the other uh, pieces of the legislation are in effect immediately. It's 50 pages long, has a lot of detail. We're just hitting the highlights here. For one, it expands the existing rental registry that requires any any property that is not owner-occupied now to be registered and known to the city. It would take it from 63000 on the registry to 100000 Yeah, and then there um, there would also be, uh, you know, the registration for, for commercial properties would, would require a, a fund uh, provided by the owner so that code violations could be fixed without, you know, waiting for them to get somebody out to uh, do it. And then also, interestingly, if uh, if properties are owned by government entities, like, like a land bank, but they're not supposed to be demolished, those also have to be registered so the city knows where they all are. It used to be that all violations were criminal, and you mentioned just a couple minutes ago writing a ticket. Part of this legislation allows there to be civil fines levied to people, a civil ticket, essentially meaning that it doesn't have to go through the court process and these tickets can, can build up in terms of what they owe. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The hope I think is that, you know, uh, it'll move much quicker. And so that'll compel the responsible party to make, to make the fixes. Um, you know, there, you'll still be able to appeal it and there'll be hearings in the, um, you know, in, in a city office as opposed to in court. 
the usual process. Yeah. And I just wanted to add that Akron has had similar issues, particularly with out-of-town landlords not being responsive to residents' complaints and um, issues that are going on in apartment complexes and whatnot. Um, there was actually a meeting held, a community forum, a couple years ago that I attended, and council um, was talking about making changes, and they formed a new committee about it. And I believe that was right before the death of Jalen Walker. Mm. So I think that kind of maybe got pushed to the side a little bit as the city kind of grappled with that for um, the last couple years. So. Um, that'll be interesting to check in about that now that Cleveland is moving forward with things. I would think one of the concerns in Akron and Cleveland and any big city is enforcement of any kind of law that you do have. And so this is a really ambitious set of new regulations. And we have a building and housing department that I would think would be taxed by it. But when our reporters and others talked to the head of building and housing in Cleveland, she said she didn't foresee any problem enforcing yeah, yeah, they said that they'll have enough staff that they have to hire a, a few more, but there are there's space in the budget for that. And you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see how how enforcement works. Um, are they going to, you know, presumably it'll be based on complaints and they'll go out when there are complaints. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how how much of a coverage they they get on all the houses that have violations when you drive through many neighborhoods in cleveland you see what they're up against there mm. as you mentioned you know the house on the street that has an overgrown yard or a falling down porch there are many neighborhoods where there are people trying to keep up their properties and it's not one it's most of the houses in that neighborhood are in that way so it's it's this is really targeting a huge problem and one that Sally Martin O'Toole, who heads the building and housing department, said that residents expect the city to do something about. Yeah, this has been such a longstanding problem. And, you know, it um, it'll be interesting to see if this works. But this is something new that they're trying to do. And, you know, since I've been here, this is something you hear every year in council. Why isn't building and housing getting on top of this? So here is there. Here's a real attempt to, to do that. Okay, you've got the tools. Let's see if uh, if we can use them. All right, let's move on to the state appropriations bill. The House passed this massive bill this week. It could funnel millions of dollars into Northeast Ohio projects. House Bill 2 totals nearly $2 billion in spending. $350 million in that bill is for one-time projects funded by a surplus in the state budget. The rest of the spending, mainly for schools, colleges, and jails, comes from bonded or borrowed funds. Karen, the House passed the bill quickly without any public hearings? Yeah, and that's not all that unusual here at the State House. Um, However, there were some Republicans who did not like that, which is interesting because I think there are a lot of Democrats who would say, hey, it's happened to us and and it it goes forward anyway. But uh, this was a a huge spending plan, uh, more than $2 billion in spending and $350 million for these local community projects, which, I mean, it's it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the land bridge connecting downtown Cleveland to the Lake Erie Lakeshore. Um, There's there's just so much in here. There's stuff for Columbus and Cincinnati and uh, all sorts of other areas. All but 16 counties got something out of this funding. You get a car and you get a car. (laughs) Everyone got a car. But this is what the the capital budget process is like. I mean, communities submit their wish lists, and then they get funded or they don't. And sometimes they don't get funded at the level they want. Then lobbyists go to work. Yes. And then... Communities get funded at a yeah. level they hope or not. 
Yeah, but this are, these are typically bills that pass pretty easily because everybody in the legislature wants to bring money home to their communities. So it was interesting to see this get a little bit of pushback. And it got pushback early on on social media from some Republican lawmakers who said they didn't like that there wasn't enough debate on this. That this bill was too big to not have some more debate. And they plan to vote against it. Nineteen of them did. But what's behind that, though, isn't it that the, there is still a continuing power struggle over the Speaker of the House and the guy who thought he was going to be Speaker of the House. Yeah, this is more of the same that we've seen on even some basic things. I mean, in this particular session, there was a vote to adjourn, which, I mean, I'm not sure that we've seen that in a very long time, if ever. So it shows that there still is a lot of disagreement among majority Republicans. The supporters of Derek Maron, who had been elected Speaker back in 2022, uh, he then lost on the floor to Jason Stevens. And we're into primary season here where the 22 Republicans who supported Jason Stevens for speaker have been censured by the Ohio Republican Party. The other Republicans who voted for Derek Maron, some of them are still pushing back against Stevens. And that's what happened here, where there were people who supported Maron who tried to stand up on the floor to complain about this and to potentially introduce other bills, including that one that would do some things with higher education, um, for instance, uh, ban most diversity, equity, and inclusion training and require intellectual diversity on controversial topics. They tried to raise that bill on the floor and they didn't, they weren't recognized by Stevens. So a lot of the struggle was going back and forth. What I thought was interesting in the end, though, Derek Maron, who a lot of these people who voted against this bill supported, Derek Maron voted yes. <laughs> so I I thought that was just kind of an interesting uh, conclusion to all this. Yeah, very interesting. Let me just ask you this. So usually when we talk to you and we talk about how the House passes something, we've got to wait for the Senate to make sure that it's okay. Is that the same case in this in this instance? Actually, yes, because typically this is one of these bills that the House and Senate agree on and it sails through almost unanimously. That's not the case in the House, obviously. And that social media concern before the vote here, that was also a concern shared by Senate President Matt Huffman, who sent a memo to his members saying it would be irresponsible for us to vote for this big spending bill without more debate and that there was no agreement between the House and Senate to move this thing forward at this time. So that's signaling that it's going to have some problems maybe when it gets to the Senate, which has its own set of uh, its, its own pool of money that it's going to be distributing. But it should be noted that Matt Huffman, the president of the Senate, who's term limited, is running for the House and is likely to challenge Jason Stevens as speaker if they are both elected this year. Hmm, interesting. More intrigue politically. Always. Uh, <laughs> one of the biggest projects receiving the one-time money we mentioned is the proposed land bridge connecting downtown to the lakefront. It's getting $20 million. And by the way, a little bit more later when we talk about the Browns and where they might uh, either renovate or build a stadium, this comes into play at some point there. Matt, though, the idea has been out there since the Browns owners floated it a few years ago. It's a, a whole lot more than $20 million, but that's a nice big boost. Yeah, and... Um you know, I, I first heard about it when I got here in like 2016, did a story about a developer who built some apartments down there in a restaurant. And he was saying that the only way to really fully develop the land down there was to get a, a, a land bridge. Um, and he kind of stepped back, the Haslam's took it over, and that gave it kind of an extra oomph. Right. Don't have to play Frogger anymore to get down to the, <laughs> to the lakefront. Uh, Karen, it's not the first time lawmakers tried to put money toward the land bridge. 
No, this is one of those that keeps coming back. And once again, these are kind of wish list projects that lawmakers and, and community leaders say they want to work on. And I think this is just an example of, of one of those things. And, and I suppose some of these things just never do come to pass. But boy, $20 million is a lot of money to put toward a project. Other projects, $7 million for the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Anna, that's not for the Hall of Fame Village. That's for a renovation of the actual Hall of Fame itself. Yeah, we talk a lot about the Hall of Fame Village, that ongoing project, but this is actually for the OG, the museum itself, the Hall of Fame, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The original gangster. The original. (laughs) Yeah, sure, the OG. Uh, Yeah, so um, this is actually an $80 million project that's been kind of ongoing. It's the first big makeover of the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame since it was built in the 60s. Um, so this, you know, $7 million, uh, a little bit toward the project, but I'm sure they're still hoping that's going to get passed in the Senate. They're talking about making this big, grand lobby. It would also then yes. become a space. You could have events there. So it's a completely different use of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Correct. So it would be not just that. There, You talked about the grand lobby, but there's also um, a permanent home for the Black College Football Hall of Fame um, and also a an event center complex. So lots going on there. Also lots going on at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. That's getting five million bucks if this all goes through. Yes, correct. So um, the... Uh, Sorry, I lost my place here. Yes. So the soccer stadium for uh, women's soccer, this is ongoing. Obviously, there isn't a um, team yet in Cleveland for women's soccer. However, um, they're hoping that this will kind of get it going. And so um, they don't they haven't released yet exactly where that space would be that they're thinking. But they um, are talking about somewhere maybe by the current Guardian Stadium. So, right. I don't know, kind of exciting. So the soccer stadium and the Rock Hall. So the Rock Hall got five million soccer stadium, a million bucks toward that. It's going to obviously cost a lot more than that. But there's been effort to bring women's professional soccer to Cleveland. This would go a long way toward that if you had a place for them to play. Uh, the other uh, things to talk about here, Matt, is another big chunk of money, $250 million, so not as big, is earmarked for jail projects, uh, including renovations. Do we know if Cuyahoga County's plans mm-hmm. might be impacted? Because they've been talking for a long time about a jail. Now they've identified a site in Garfield Heights. Would there be state money for it? Yeah, that that's not clear yet. I mean, they, they now are at the stage where they have to come up with a plan and get it approved by the state so, so they have the money and they have the land or the source of money is a sales tax extension um <clears throat> it's not clear yet how much would come from the state there was also discussion about uh tax revenue from legalized marijuana going towards you know statewide jail construction but i mean that could be anywhere and it's not clear yet where and then finally, there's a separate tranche of money, so not part of this, but nearly $60 million announced by Governor Mike DeWine to fund improvements to bridges across the state, not necessarily this land bridge, but actual bridges, actually lift bridges throughout the state. In Akron, uh, University Avenue, North Main, and South High Street bridges will get money, as will the Cherry Street Bridge in Maslin. And the Carter Bridge in Cleveland, Carter Road Bridge in Cleveland, will get $20 million, another big amount of money, about a third of all the money being allocated. Yeah, and that's sort of connected to uh, something I think we'll talk about later. But the the uh, development right there, um, kind of below Tower City by the by by the river, this would connect. This is the bridge that connects to that peninsula that's on the opposite side of the river from from Tower City, Scranton, Scranton Peninsula, Scranton Peninsula, right? And so you know that is a target for development. And right now it's just kind of a, a bike path and um, you know nature preserve basically. 
Moving on to what uh, other development has everyone buzzing in Cleveland, and this was something when uh, Ken Prendergast of the Neotrans blog uh, posted one of his scoops. He's the person, by the way, who broke the story that Sherwin-Williams would be staying downtown and building where it was. So his sources were pretty good on that one. In this case, he cites three anonymous sources saying the Haslam Sports Group, owners of the Browns, have a contract to purchase, which doesn't necessarily mean they will, but could purchase land in Brook Park near Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. The Browns have discussed for years the need to either renovate the current stadium or build a new one at a hefty price tag, either on the lakefront or someplace else. The story has ramped up speculation that the someplace else might just be Brook Park. Matt, this is a talker. 12 of 32 NFL teams already play outside of their central city. The Bears are contemplating a move, so that would be yet another one. This isn't necessarily a move to Baltimore kind of thing. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people that are very concerned that the Browns would move out of the central city. Yeah, um, you know, we we don't have a, there was a response after this this story from the city where city officials said that they had come up with a sort of a funding package for uh, for the Browns, for the Haslam's to uh, presumably renovate the uh, stadium in the city. And we don't know what's in that, but it appears that it might not be enough um, or it might not be exactly what the Haslam's were, were hoping to see. Um, I know that the city is, you know, trying to keep them here. Um, but there's also been a lot of talk that so many people outside of the city kind of come and use the stadium and are Browns fans and other municipalities uh, maybe should have a bit more skin in the game for whatever happens with the stadium. And so moving it out where it becomes more of a, a county <laughs> responsibility um, might also make sense. Yeah, when you look at stadium funding proposals, they don't do well by voters in the city. They're usually passed beyond mm-hmm. uh, beyond the city in Cuyahoga County. Uh, Ed sends us an email saying Cleveland should let the Browns go to Brook Park and get serious about free green space for all on the lake. And that's an interesting point because Mayor Justin Bibb has said it's a priority. His uh, chief of staff or uh, top consultant Bradford Davey uh, said yesterday it's a top priority. We want to keep the Browns here. Um, He actually is the chief of staff. Um, But many would say if the mayor let the Browns leave downtown Cleveland and his votes are Cleveland votes, he might actually do better as a result of that. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting point. I, I you know, I mean, it's not like the Guardians or the or the Cavs who play dozens of games every year in in downtown. This is eight games a year, um, and so you know that that stadium sits empty most of the time, and a lot of people would not notice the loss of sort of activity that one day a week when they are playing. There's a number of sites the Browns have said they're looking at. They're doing their diligence. They're, uh, to, to some degree, this is how negotiations happen, right? right. We, we could go here. We could go there. It's not like we're going to move out of town, but we, we might move out of downtown. Um, the Browns have been part of the effort to get that land bridge. Now we see that $20 million coming and the push for that. The land bridge is really about this, right? It's essentially about developing the lakefront, but it's developing the lakefront in a way that makes it enticing to the Browns to renovate or build new where they are. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that it is. I know that there are plans that uh, to to build up, um, you know, basically a neighborhood on the on the land owned by the Port of Cleveland that's right around the stadium, and 
um, you know, then the pe- the people who run the the Rock Hall of Fame and the Science Center down there would argue that there's plenty of reason to have a land bridge without the Browns, and then you know, throw in the fact that uh, not many sober people are strolling down to the lakefront. During football season, uh, you know, the time when that land bridge would be used would be during the off season, mostly. Um, so, you know, I, I, there are lots of reasons to have a land bridge besides the Browns down there. If uh, Here's a question from Audrey. If the Browns owners build a stadium in Brook Park, would they own it? Would the owners be responsible themselves for maintaining that stadium? Would the city of, would the city of Cleveland be involved in any way? Well, generally, the, the owners... Um, you know, well, I, I, I don't know all the deals that are worked out in all the cities. Right. The, usually it is, uh, publicly owned. It is publicly owned and the, and the public money goes towards like the upkeep, but, and then often what's, what's been happening is that owners will invest in the area around the stadium and, you know, generate revenue from, uh, restaurants, bars, betting facilities that are put in around the uh, stadium, um, you know, I, I would assume it would be a county, state, uh, local municipality-owned stadium out there, too. So we'll be obviously following that a lot more. Is this a pawn in the negotiation? Is it possible that the Browns could build a stadium outside of downtown? We'll find out more, obviously, as time goes on, and we'll keep on that story. In the meanwhile, though, we've got to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about a new effort in Columbus to cap the price of insulin. This is the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Stay tuned. You are back with the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thank you so much for being with us this hour. I'm joined this week by Matt Richmond and Anna Huntsman from Ideastream. And Statehouse News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler is with us from Columbus. David sends a note about our earlier discussion about Cleveland's new housing codes. He said, I would have liked to see such legislation requiring landlords to have local representatives be more than just Cleveland. There are so many out-of-state or international investors who are buying up properties in suburbs and exurbs that just lead to higher housing prices and worse conditions of properties. Maybe Cuyahoga County should do something similar. David, thank you for your point of view. And if you would like to share yours, soi at ideastream.org is the way to get in touch with us via email. I check those throughout the show. You can also tweet at Sound of Ideas. Ohio lawmakers are taking a bipartisan path, two in a row now, uh, on capping uh, insulin costs for Ohioans with diabetes. The federal government capped insulin costs at $35 for a month's supply of insulin for seniors with Medicare. Lawmakers now are talking about expanding the protection to more than a million Ohioans who are insulin dependent. You don't have to be on Medicare. Karen, there are bipartisan bills in each chamber. The House version goes even further, though. Yeah, the House version would also cover things like test strips and uh, pumps, glucometers, all that kind of stuff, and cap those costs at $35. And then there are also some non-prescription kits that the cost would be capped at at $100. And so this is not the first time that this has been proposed. In fact, in the last two legislative sessions, bills have been proposed to deal with the price of insulin. And in the last session before this one and this one, these were bipartisan bills. So it's, it's. Uh, I think for a lot of people, there's about a million Ohioans who are dependent on insulin. This is a big deal for them. And the question is whether the legislature will move on this. Does the 30, $35 cap, is that per vial of insulin? Is it per subscription or per prescription? Do we, do we know? 
I think it's intended to be per prescription, but I think those are some of the details of the bill that we're still finding out. Each time these bills are proposed, there's a little bit more detail. And what I think is interesting is that a lot of the bills, a lot of time the bills are proposed by people who actually are, have diabetes that are insulin dependent. And so that certainly helps the process, I would think. Yeah, as an insulin-dependent diabetic, I am, you know, very grateful that I have the insurance I have. I just can't imagine people who are paying these exorbitant prices. And by the way, you'll pay everything you have. If you don't have the insulin, you're not living. Right. And obviously, the uh, what you described about uh, seniors on Medicare, that was in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2002. But if you're not on Medicare, then you kind of are at the mercy of the insurance companies and, and whatever the price of insulin is. And that legislation was introduced by two legislators, both of whom are also insulin-dependent diabetics. Right. Representative Munira Abdullahi and uh, Thomas Hall, Republic, Democrat and Republican. And the same situation in the Senate, where you had uh, Herschel Craig and um, Nathan Manning. And I, I, I can't remember if they're both uh, dependent on insulin or not. But still, the whole idea is let's bring this forward since it's already being guaranteed for, I think it's 4 million people across the country in Medicare. Bringing it to all Ohioans who are insulin dependent is something that at least these bipartisan bills hope to do, but whether they will move or not is the issue. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if those folks are uh, either. I haven't seen them at the Insulin Dependent Diabetics Club that we have here in Cleveland. <laughs> well, and I, it's, it's interesting to hear these lawmakers talk about that this is their issue. They wouldn't necessarily bring this up, but they, they feel it's important, especially in this context. Certainly, their lived experience. All right, uh, moving on to the city of Akron. And Anna, you've been covering this story. It'll pay $747,000 to protesters arrested during demonstrations following the police shooting death of Jalen Walker. That happened in June of 2022. The demonstrations took place between July 3rd and July 7th. Plaintiffs sued the city and former Mayor Dan Horrigan and former Police Chief Steve Milet, dozens of officers as well. What do the plaintiffs allege in their lawsuits against the city, Anna? They basically say that um, police responded in a way that infringed on their constitutional right to protest, but also used unlawful force. So in some cases, plaintiffs described being um, actually physically um, hurt by police during the uh, response. Um, There was a curfew put on by the city of Akron at the time, um, and so they said that infringed on their right to protest. Um, The lawyer that I talked to, Elizabeth Bonham, said that people were just rising to um, express, you know, their disappointment and their sadness um, in the days following Jalen Walker's death. The new mayor, Shamas Malik, said the city decided it was financially prudent to settle. Um, Not all the plaintiffs, though, are in the settlements. There's still more to come. Yeah, this is actually, uh, so 24 people sued. This settlement involves 22 of them. The remaining two people um, also brought forth a suit against, uh, it was University of Akron police who had responded, so that one still hasn't been uh, resolved yet, but the universe, or excuse me, the city of Akron police officers, that one has uh, been settled. But yes, the, the new mayor, Shamas Malik, basically said we didn't want to waste taxpayer money to continue litigating this, and they just felt it was better to just go ahead and settle. And there are other suits that are still outstanding. I'm thinking of the protests that happened after the grand jury decided not to indict 
people who were pepper sprayed yep. and those types of things. So there are more. There's more to come. There's that one, and with that one, um, the same attorney Bonham um, is involved in that one. She said with that one, they're actually looking for policy reform rather than some sort of financial compensation. And of course, there's the the big one, which is the family of Jalen Walker has sued the city, um, and so that one is still ongoing as well. And then also, isn't there one that's still from from the Akron Beacon Journal? where they're suing for the names of the officers that were involved. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if that if anything has gone on with that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, that that was one of the seri- I, th- I think one of the major issues is that there were these names that went out about who the officers were. But the city never kind of formally released them and said that they didn't re- need to. And they're fighting yeah. it in the Supreme Court. Yeah. And if the city's perspective is that um, they wanted to protect the officers who were getting death threats and whatnot. And that also led to a policy of uh, the officers were allowed to remove their name tags, which caused a lot of controversy. But that has actually since uh, gone away. Mayor Malik uh, stopped that in February. Right. So they're wearing their So name they tags. are wearing their badges. Yep. In the aftermath of the Jalen Walker shooting, it led to voters approving the creation of a citizen's police oversight board in Akron. And creating that board has turned out to be simpler than figuring out what powers it'll have. This week, the board adopted a new set of rules that dialed back its investigative power. Take us back, Anna. Originally, the board said, we're going to investigate allegations at the same time alongside the police. We're going to do our own investigations. It'll be clean. It'll be different. Now they're saying, because of pushback, we're going to let you do an investigation, then we'll take a look at it afterward. Exactly. You you summed it up completely. That's the, the key difference here with this set of rules, and that is directly because city council rejected that specific um, part, part of the rules previously, saying that that would jeopardize the investigations and the outcomes of that. And there was also major pushback from the police union, which is under contract, that says only Akron police should be able to investigate Akron police. So um, while board members still believe that as an oversight board, they have that power. They're kind of, for the time being, saying, we'll just go ahead and take a look after hoping to get that power later on. Meanwhile, they don't have investigators at this point. (laughs) Correct. So they're in the process of hiring a police auditor who would be the actual person doing the investigation after the internal affairs one has already been completed. They have a candidate. He's actually coming to town next week, and he's going to do a town hall discussion with residents. He's going to meet with city leaders um, before they officially, you know, approve his contract. And then they would also hire a deputy auditor So that office is actually going to be doing the investigations. And that's another reason why board members say they're okay with um, giving up that power to do it alongside, because they're saying we don't have the capacity to do that right now, and we're not even going to be the ones doing it anyway. Um, So they're hoping that when the city negotiates, its renegotiates its contract with the police union this year, that that power will actually be included, and they'll eventually be able to do that. Matt, you've been working for a long time, and I know even just this week, based on our morning meetings and discussions, uh, about Cleveland's police commission, the Community Police Commission. Uh, It's supposed to be a year further along in its efforts, but it's found slow going as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first, it's just they have so so much authority, so many responsibilities that they've – it's been difficult getting every one of these – different things, you know, the oversight of uh, policies and figuring out. They've started to come up with a way to get policies from the police department that they can review and which ones exactly go to the commission and, and which ones don't. And, you know, it, it gets very complicated when you get down into the weeds. They just recently had their first, like, sort of formal request to review discipline from the city, um, you know, discipline that was already issued to an officer to come in and kind of 
evaluate the city's decision making. And so now, you know, they're moving on to try to figure out how exactly they're going to go about doing that. And they don't do their own independent investigation the way Akron wanted to. They're doing more of the review. Yeah, this would be sort of like an appeals court. They would look at the investigation that's already been done in, in, in general. They could be they can, you know, order the Office of Professional Standards to, to conduct investigations. But generally, they're going to look at what's already been done and then act as an appeals court. So sort of uh, interrogate the decision that was made by the public safety director. Are they getting along any better amongst themselves? <laughs> no. there. You know, there's recently been a lot of uh, time spent on an attempt to remove one of the commissioners from their role as, a, as, as committee chair, and then also to, to remove her from the commission entirely. And that has really caused a lot of fighting within the commission and sort of behind the scenes. I also just wanted to add that with Akron's rules, now that the board has passed it, it's they still have to be approved by city council, and that's per the charter. So that could happen as early as this coming Monday at city council. Um, I also, too, I just wanted to add that the board members say that there's been they feel a change. I mean, we've covered this, you know, for a year, kind of the pushback that they've received from council and the kind of infighting and whatnot. But since the Malik administration has started, they say there's a change. They feel like the city is more willing to work with them. The law department was, uh, you know, expedited, expedited this process with the rules. And I think it's not a coincidence that Shamas Malik literally helped write the charter amendment that got the board approved. And one of the petition, he was one of the petitioners. Another petitioner was Nanette Pitt, who's his chief of strategy. So we could, you know, again, we could see maybe a change this year. Maybe they can actually work towards some real progress. And I, I think that's a really good point, too, is that, you know, these are supposed to be independent bodies. But if they don't have the real support of the mayor, yeah. um, then it's really hard to actually get the things that they're supposed to do done. Speaking of the mayor in Cleveland, Justin Bibb, his proposal for a special taxing district to spur downtown development is projected by his administration to bring in 3.3 to 7.5 billion, with a B, dollars over 42 years. If it's approved by city council, half of that money, though, needs to be directed at Cleveland's neighborhoods, not just downtown, according to Council President Blaine Griffin. Apparently, Bibb's shore-to-core-to-shore plan has to include more to get council support, Matt. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is another one of those things that's been going on for years is a sense that all the funding gets, you know, uh, concentrated downtown. And this is some of the biggest numbers that, you know, I've, I've seen in, in five, six years here. And council is kind of putting its foot down saying, you know, OK, if you're going to be dealing with numbers this big, we need guarantees that it's going to go out to the rest of the city to all the neighborhoods. And the city has basically said, no, this money is for making sure that downtown projects are are paid for, that that will have a great effect on the neighborhoods. And also we would use some of that money for parks in neighborhoods and rec centers. And Griffin is saying, no, no, we're not just talking about parks and rec centers. We're talking about actual major development in these suburbs. I mean, yeah. in, these, in these neighborhoods. Yeah, and I think um, also, you know, to give council some some authority over so you know if, if the mayor says we're limiting it to these uh you know targets then that takes it out of council's hand and so i think they want to broaden the the possible uses of all this money and council has to approve yeah 
yeah, there's going to be some long hearings about this. So, uh, Anna, would you call it a tiff tiff? <laughs> I would call it a tiff tiff. And I was just waiting for someone to continue the rhyme with the core to shore and more. I've never heard that before. <laughs> okay, very good. I've got more puns in store. Let's stop with that right <laughs> puns now. Puns galore. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and by the way, I say tiff tiff, and uh, the acronym fighter has to tell you that's because it's called a tax increment financing district. That's the first tiff. Tiff otherwise being, you know, a fight. All right. Moving along, lawmakers don't agree on much these days, but Ohio's congressional delegation is finding common ground on protecting the Great Lakes. Ohio's U.S. senators and many of its House members have introduced legislation to extend the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative through 2031 and bump up its yearly financing the allocation. Karen, the Great Lakes are an economic driver for the region, but also a source of drinking water. It's not surprising such an issue gets bipartisan support, it would seem. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the partnerships that come together when things like this are at stake. I mean, you've got Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, who probably don't agree on anything other than this and also the bill that helps the railroads, exactly, that seeks to deal with what happened in East Palestine. But, you know, this is, uh, Dave Joyce's office says, this is 1.5 million jobs, 90% of our nation's fresh fresh surface water. Sherrod Brown says it's drinking water for 11 million people and uh, generates $62 billion in wages every year. So there's a lot of money at stake here in the Great Lakes, not just for Ohio, but all the states that surround the Great Lakes. Great Lakes initiative has been in place for 14 years and analysis indicates it's brought back in more money that's been spent. Yeah, and Marcy Kaptur, uh, who's another member of Congress, and a reminder, all members of Congress are up for election this year. Marcy Kaptur's office says that uh, this initiative has brought back $3.4 billion to fund about 6,800 projects throughout the Great Lakes region. So uh, she also, her office cited a study that showed that the initiative and the restoration deal here generates about $3.5 billion in economic activity. So there's a lot going on here. All right. There's a lot going on on the show, too. We've got many more stories to address. Let's take a quick break and take a breath. Then we'll come back with our lightning round to finish up the show. It's the Sound of Ideas Reporters Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. Stay tuned. We are back with the Roundtable. I'm Mike McIntyre. So good to have you back with us. Got plenty more to talk about. We'll share some thoughts from our listeners to start off this segment. And uh, one is from Heather. She says, I love the Browns. I don't love the location of the stadium on the lakefront. I feel that land could be more useful for public, uh, for more people, if it were developed as public access to the lake. Keep the Browns in the area, but not on our lakefront. And that's Heather in Cleveland. And we also have Kate, who says that she also is a member of the Insulin Dependent Club. She says, I'm 40 years old, otherwise healthy, type 1 diabetic. My husband owns his own business, so our monthly private health care payment equates to a second mortgage, and I pay nearly $300 a month for one vial of insulin. A $35 cap on insulin prescriptions would be game-changing for me. My mother, who's been type 1 for 50 years, gets more than 10 vials a month for 5 bucks. The discrepancy in price for the same product is maddening. Kate, that's certainly what the legislators who are in favor of this legislation are thinking about and talking about. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Let's talk about some more uh, going on in Columbus. A bill that proposed to create two pilot programs and pay students to attend school and graduate, something that got a lot of response when we talked about it here on the roundtable, appears to be stalled now in Columbus. Karen, what's going on with House Bill 348? 
Well, we don't really know. Um, That's a bill that really got a lot of attention when it first came out because it is a bipartisan bill, and it seeks to reward kids in kindergarten and ninth grade in the pilot program for going to class and to graduate. And the Republican sponsor of the bill, Senator Bill Seitz, who a representative of Bill Seitz, he's been both a senator and a representative, so sometimes I forget, Uh, he talked about how we've tried Pizza Day, we've tried all these other things, and nothing seems to work to really boost our attendance scores. And his Democratic co-sponsor, Danny Isaacson, said, you know, it's a crisis when it comes to attendance in schools. We haven't gotten back to that pre-pandemic level. So this is a cash incentive program that basically would reward kids for going to class and reward kids for graduating. It's assigned to a committee that has some really conservative members on it. Adam Byrd, Beth Lear, Gary Click, Josh Williams. These are people who are, are really very serious conservatives, and they have some real questions about the bill. So I, I don't know if it's going to move, but uh, the speaker has said it. he's kind of a noncommittal about whether it's going to move at all. Just got a text in from Drew Mazius. It oh, is uh, A-H-H-H-H-H-H. Ah, <sighs> that's that's the the whole text. All right. <laughs> Moving on, one other, uh, and we'll turn a little bit more serious here. Uh, Dave Yost the attorney general has asked Hamilton County judge to dismiss a case challenging the state's six-week abortion ban. What's interesting about this, Karen, is he had said that if the abortion, if the amendment uh, passed, which it did, that would cancel out the six-week abortion ban. Now he's saying not so fast. Yeah, he said that not only in campaign speeches, he said that in a legal analysis that his office did on issue one, and he said that in a filing before the Ohio Supreme Court on this. So it's interesting now that he's saying that the case should not be dismissed because the abortion providers who filed the lawsuit say because issue one passed that it's over. This case should be dismissed and the six-week abortion ban should be nullified. And so he's saying that this uh, it needs to go forward and there are other issues at stake, I guess, here. So we're kind of waiting to see what happens with this decision. Um, the judge in Hamilton County, Judge Christian Jenkins, is the one who apparently will decide this. Is this a delay tactic? Some suggest it's a maneuver that would give lawmakers time to pass legislation that would take the courts out of the process. I don't know that that's going to happen in the time frame we're talking about here because the judge could issue a decision at any point. And lawmakers were right into primary season. And that was actually one of the things in our discussion about the spending bill that passed. Speaker Jason Stevens described the candidates, the, the, the uh, House members who are all candidates, who tried to disrupt that as being ornery because we're in a primary season. And so I, I just don't know that the timing on that's going to work. All right. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, We're also in Super Bowl season. Super Bowl is this Sunday, Super Bowl 58. It's in Las Vegas between San Francisco 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. And my friend Norrell is on a cruise right now, so he will not hear me and call me and complain when I say go Niners. Sorry, buddy. Love the KC barbecue, though. The Browns won't be playing this Sunday, but the team cleaned up in year-end league awards. Kevin Stefanski was coach of the year. Defensive coordinator Jim Schwartz was the assistant coach of the year. Miles Garrett is the defensive player of the year. And Joe Flacco claimed the comeback player of the year award. A great showing for the Browns in the city, but still no Lombardi trophy, Karen. I'd I'd give all that up for maybe a chance to play in this game Sunday. No, no kidding. But I, I mean, really, seriously, last night was great. It was great to see Miles Garrett get that recognition as well as our coaches. And I mean, Joe Flacco, who had a better comeback story? I know a lot of people wanted to see um, Demar Hamlin from the Bengals because of what happened to him, the hard, uh, the hard incident on the field. But God, Flacco was just amazing, wasn't he? And 
and I, I it's so weird to say that. <laughs> Baker Mayfield had a heck of a comeback year too. Ooh, so. do we want to talk about that? We do. <laughs> we do. We have no. We have nothing against Baker Mayfield. It was a business decision, I guess. But yeah, he he was great too. But yeah, it was really cool to see everybody that kind of was up for an award for the Browns got one. Now we get to the Super Bowl, and many of us who want to watch it want to watch for the game, but all of us also want to watch it for the commercials. That's what it's all oh, about. Oh yeah. And uh, we'll talk about a commercial that's going to be in the Super Bowl, but it turns out that Destination Cleveland is going to launch a new tourism campaign. And for a while, I think they were making people think it was Super Bowl. They were saying it's on the big sports mm-hmm. day. Turns out it's for the Puppy Bowl. Woof. Which is cool. Yeah. But it's not quite exactly the same thing. But according to their release, the ad will feature the land through the eyes of a dog. Hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. That is neat. I, I mean, I can imagine, obviously, we haven't seen it yet, but I can imagine it's probably going to showcase some of the wonderful outdoorsy things you can do in Cleveland. You can take your dog. And I would I would love to see Cleveland through the eyes of a cat, speaking from personal experience. <laughs> I'm a dog guy. We, should, we can, we can see it through a dog. just all, all over the walls, all over the ceiling of the house. That's uh, just my experience. <laughs> it, it's funny. I remember um, uh, long ago hearing from an uh, advocate of Cleveland who said he was excited when he stepped in a pile of dog droppings because it meant that there was people living in Cleveland oh, again oh. in downtown Cleveland hmm. and now we're having commercials for for dogs so, so, so you would step in a pile of dog droppings and smile and say, yes yes exactly <laughs> right. you didn't Good see the, the arm the arm <laughs> pump but yes exactly that the other commercial to watch for is aimed at uh, and this is during the Super Bowl at Browns fans and our perpetual next year hopes the commercial for United Airlines features actor Kyle Chandler coach Taylor of Friday Night Lights clear eyes full hearts can't lose if you know you know the uh, message next year is the year and book that flight right now Cleveland I know you're watching other people's teams play today but this season you got everyone's attention the grit the wins the defense next season you get the title finally Browns fans this is about believing believing so hard that you book your flight to next year's big game before the season even starts because believing that hard can change everything oh man i'll do anything for that coach for sure <laughs> uh and it says at the end of it the whole point of it is and oh by the way if you don't happen to make it you can change your uh flight without any fees that's basically the the bait and switch and they did it not mm. just in cleveland but a number of other store another other cities as well mm. uh finally i do want to note uh, a great moment that happened sunday country star luke combs's cover of tracy chapman's essentially perfect fast car became one of the big hits of 2023 a smash for chapman in 88 winning a grammy when she was just 24 and sunday at the grammy awards Combs who was nominated for his rendition but did not win, took the stage with Chapman, a Cleveland native, now living in San Francisco, for a duet of Fast Car. Chapman was clearly the star. Combs ended the songs with an I'm not worthy bow. Mm-hmm. Guys, I think I've rewatched it a dozen times. What what a moment. And when I think about that song, it's funny because I talk to people your age, Anna, who, mm-hmm. who are people slightly younger than me, and people my age and people Matt's age, somewhere in between. And it's the kind of song that seems to hit everybody. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful, timeless song. I don't know anyone who doesn't like that song. And I I watched it live, and I really loved how Luke looked at her the whole time. I mean, she was clearly the star, and he really let her have her moment. And I I loved it. It was amazing. I think he was just awestruck. And she was amazing. And she showed you how to play a guitar and not have anything in your ears and just sing. It was was a pretty amazing moment. Well, we're going to end the show with that. I want to say thank you to you, Matt, and to Anna, and to you, Karen, as well. Have a great day. You too, Have a great weekend. All right, and we're going to end the show with what else? Tracy Chapman's original Fast Car. You get a fast car. I want a ticket to anywhere. 
To get the last word on today's topics, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on X, Twitter, at Sound of Ideas. Be sure to listen to the Sound of Ideas and host Jenny Hamill next week, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Monday through Friday. If you miss any portion of this program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. And check out the television version, Ideas, at 7.30 on WBIZ-PBS. I'm Mike McIntyre. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. Just a little bit of money won't have to drive too far Just across the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs And finally see what it means to be living See, my old man's got a problem He live with a bottle, that's the way it is He says his body's too old for working Body's too young to look like his My mama went off and left him She wanted more from life than he could give I said, somebody's got to take care of him So I quit school and that's what I did You got a fast car Is it fast enough so we can fly away? You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way